Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal Basecamp Podcast, your central information for New England skiing and riding. I am Eric Wilbur, your host. I am right here alongside my co-host, Mike Specian. He's right here. Mike, how you doing? Eric, fantastic. Have you been watching Facebook? I don't I don't know if you follow all these ski areas out west that are mm-hmm. snow dusting here, a little bit more there, and I got a memory the other day of a big dump up in up in the whitefish area and i'm going game on game on indeed i mean this is look was it 15 years ago i'm going to say i'm going to guess it was 15 years ago it may not have been 2006 2007 what is that 16 17 years ago almost my god i'm old we got a huge dump at Wildcat. Do you remember this? It was like two and a half feet of snow in mid-October. The World Series hadn't even finished yet. And Wildcat opened. And it was mid to late October, and it was glorious. That is one of the earliest, best skiing times I can remember in New England. I mean, yes, I've skied in October where I've skied on a white ribbon of death. But this was like midwinter skiing, first day out. I don't anticipate anything like that. But here's the thing. We could still be skiing this month. Um, we used to ski in October. <laughs> I know. We used to. Okay. Yeah. If everybody remembers. The but cas- that's a white ribbon of death, right? The, no, no, talking- no. The Cascade, the Cascade double, when when Killington used to, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Used to load you up to mid-station and above, the skiing was really good up there. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't honestly remember... That dump at Wildcat, I do remember a 50-inch dump at Wildcat Mm -hmm. because I took my son to Bretton Woods with about three feet of new, uh, and he was just a little tight tyke at the time, and he went off trail and and went up to his chest and was buried. I had to go dig him out, and he didn't fall. (laughs) He was just stuck. He couldn't move. By the time this podcast airs, we're sitting here in early October. By the time this podcast airs, we could be striking distance to getting out in the hill. Very much close to striking distance. By the time this airs, we're going to be there's going to be skiers open in this country. Okay, okay, we're back. Game once again. Game on. We're going to be there. Soccer season's going to be over. Uh, football season's going to be over, and families are now booking for the ski season. Yep. They're getting ready to go. The the energy that I've seen out there in the marketplace is strong, really strong. Why is that? Well, the, people are coming into the stores. Mm-hmm. I've traveled the whole main coast. I've traveled New Hampshire. I've traveled Connecticut and Massachusetts. Everybody is stoked. Early season business is strong. And there's optimism out there. People buy season's passes. It's a little bit different than a lot of other sports outdoor activities like bikes and stuff Mm -hmm. because you buy your season's pass you're committed um so you know and then the real kicker here have you seen the forecast from the farmer's almanac and stuff (laughs) yes i have and yes and it's the farmer's almanac it's like uh, i want to believe it but you know hold it hold it stop with the bad vibes, no, Moriarty. no, no, it's not bad vibes. It's it's more just look, believe, believe. I I tell my my kids this in class all the time, right? Like we're going over the six elements of of creating good video, and one of the things is a conflict. Like you need a conflict. Every single story from Little Red Riding Hood 
all the way down to house hunters. Am I going to pick house number two or number three has conflict, right? So when I bring up something like that and bring, say it, it, it's got to have a, a yin to the yang, right? But, but You've got to have someone saying, no, this is not the best thing I've time, ever seen in time my life. Out, Eric. Because it time probably out. isn't. Time out. What? Early in this podcast, earlier this summer, you were a naysayer on the socks, And look where they ended up. Last place. Okay, so. <laughs> your, your you point? just got caught. I know. <laughs> Positive thinking here, folks. It's going to dump this year. It's going to be a complete season. None of this. Wait until third week of February for snow. All this right, is well, going to be it. All right. Well, let's I, look. I'm not arguing you. I'm just saying, like, in my land of reality, where things have happened in the past, the Farmer's Almanac isn't... Look, if you want to make fun of me in February or March, because it's dumping all year long, and I didn't pay attention to the Farmer's Almanac, please, welcome. I welcome the the taunts and the ridicule. Please, write in, email, FaceTime me. I want to see your faces making fun of me because I was so wrong. How could an idiot be that wrong? Please, I welcome that. Well, to the listeners that can't see the veins bulging in his <laughs> neck right now, they're pretty funny. But, you know, we just came out of radio. We just came out of a three-part series on movies that got us all stoked. Mm-hmm. It's the start of the season. It's it's about Thinking about that line, closing your eyes. I used to tell people standing in the ski boots, close your eyes as you're flexing them. Think about your favorite run. Now just visualize it. Right. And and don't worry about the boot. Think about the skiing at the moment. And we, with that being said, we, we also have times to give thank yous or congratulations to people that really influenced New England skiing and all of us. Right. Well, I mean, John Egan fits that bill. I mean, John Egan is synonymous with the extreme skiing movement of the 90s when the Egans and the Deloriers were in all the Warren Miller movies and created their own, you know, I mean, Return of the Shred Eye is a classic right there. And we've got John Egan on today's podcast, which is going to be great because he is such a, he's such a spokesperson for the sport. And such a spokesperson for Vermont, really, in, in the way that he has embraced that state and made it his own, his own, and rightfully so, will be inducted, or by the time this airs, actually, will have been inducted in the Vermont Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame during a ceremony at Killington. And obviously, that is an honor that is very well-deserved. Well, yes, it is well-deserved. I look at John Egan as the soul the real soul of skiing because he's not pretentious he's not he's not aspen he's not beaver creek he is true new england true vermont and for somebody at that talent that didn't leave and go elsewhere but stayed in that environment where where family still matters I love it. I can't wait to. I can't wait for the chat. And we'll, we'll get to the interview in just a second. But I just want to remark that on a recent podcast, we had Todd Jones on, talking about the character of New England skiers, and how maybe we don't get the, the big, huge dumps here in New England, but we all have character. And I sort of mocked him, <laughs> saying, "Yeah, great, we got character, dude. That's awesome. Enjoy your three foot dumps out there out west, but we got character." And I said it partly in jest because you talk to someone like John, and John is the very definitive answer of that new england character right of a new england skier and the heart and soul that goes into that so well we have talked you mentioned that we have spoken to 
world-class skiers like a Doug Lewis who who comes back east, but he lives out west now, or Lynn Wyland, or, 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 or Todd Jones. This is somebody that came back to where his roots were, came back to where he felt his soulful place was. And I admire that because there are many days that I idolize, my wife will tell you, idolizing living in Taos, New Mexico, which is my favorite. Mm. But guess what? Coming back and having roots and believing in where you're at is something very special. Yes, absolutely. And I'm a New Englander at heart, so I, I subscribe to that wholeheartedly. John Egan will be up with us next on the New England Ski Journal Basecamp podcast. We'll be back in a second. All right, welcome back to the Basecamp podcast. On the Zoom line, we've got a, a pleasure to, to host John Egan, a legendary extreme skier and future inductee into the Vermont Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. It's a pleasure to welcome John to the show. John, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, John, it's awesome to have you on. We we talk about the Vermont Hall of Fame. You were in a little bit different Hall of Fame recently called the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. How does it feel to be going into these iconic, iconic spot spaces in the ski world? That's pretty surreal. I've just always loved skiing and really found my my buddies and all my dear friends, my wife, everybody in the uh, mountains. And so it's just been my life. So it's really nice to be recognized, but it's also quite humbling and a little shocking. Can you explain to the audience who may not know your background, how does a kid from Milton, Massachusetts wind up in the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame and now the Vermont Ski and Hall of Fame? Well, I, I grew up in Boston and uh, had a lot of fun as a youth, but about 18 graduating high school most of my buddies were not on the right path and if they were still alive they were maybe locked up or going somewhere and I just kind of read the writing on the wall and I moved to Vermont I my folks loved to ski and they introduced us to skiing we skied at Blue Hills straight outside of Boston and we skied at uh, Mount Cranmore in New Hampshire I used to ride that ski mobile they used to have up there so my parents introduced me to skiing and I just knew that I loved the ski. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I came to Vermont and started skiing and I was lucky. I landed at Trigwish in Vermont and what a great crowd. And I was told if you want to be one of the best skiers in the world, you got to come to where the best skiers ski. So East coast, one of the best mountains up there. And it's right in the part of the green mountains. We got Stowe, we got Smogs, we got Bolton Valley, we got Sugarbush, we got Mad River. I mean, it's really quite a place to to be and the amount of great skiers around here was spectacular and i really found that they all opened up their their stories to you they they shared their knowledge they they weren't hoarders of knowledge and they they wanted you to do better and get better so i was with the right crowd at the right time that is awesome because that northern vermont area is the epicenter of steep technical skiing in new england and that's where you're at i mean and it still is today so so you guys started off the egans and the deloriers started off uh in the 90s with these great films i think it was the 90s maybe the late 80s 
but tell us how that all came about. You guys, you were also part of the North Face Extreme team, were you not? We were. We were the original members of the uh, North Face Extreme team. And the whole film thing started for me. Luckily, up here, Warren Miller came to film in Vermont. And I got to be in one of his films. And he made the mistake of giving me his 800 number. <laughs> Properly wrote down and have it memorized. I still know it. And I never stopped calling him. So I was filmed twice here in the East. And then luckily, my friend Tom Day, who's from Montpelier, who lives at Squaw Valley, quite a cameraman, talked him into bringing me to Europe on one of his shoots with him. And I got to see with Tommy. And that was pretty cool and fun to do. And that was in the mid-80s. And so here's in 88, my brother was getting out of high school and he said, I kind of like what you're doing. And he joined me and we went out to Squaw Valley together and ran into the Deloriers. And we worked with Tom Lane from North, North Face. I'd worked with him for quite a while and he was starting a whole new team and he chose us to be part of it. So once again, right place, right time. I want to go back to, to Vermont quickly, just for a second, because I want to, when you first made your move there. Was there any inkling that said, this is going to define who I am, right? Like this place, this, this place that I'm injecting myself into. And I asked that only because sometimes when we start a move like that, it's not until years later we realize how much it defined us. So when you first went to Vermont, was there any inclination that said, yes, this is my future. I'm here forever. I think the, the people that I met that love to ski as much as I do was probably eye-opening and wonderful and probably one of those moments where I said, oh yeah, these are my people, I'm here. And yeah, I guess that was, yeah, it was the people. It really was the people. I mean, the terrain was awesome, but having some of the best in the world, these Austrians and um, South Americans that were topped from their country showing you their stuff was pretty cool. Well, yeah, I mean, you the we just lost an iconic person in the Sugarbush Valley, of course, at Shea Henry's. One of you talk about that European influence that came into that neck of the woods, or even into Cranmore, anywhere else, was just amazing how they sort of formulated who we were. We're the old school of the ski industry in the U.S., not not the newer school, which is great. But with that being said, you guys. We we talked to Mike Hattrip, of course, a West Coast boy, boy recently. We talked to Todd Jones recently, who's when Jackson or Lynn Wyland we, we spoke with for Hot Dog the Movie. And she's in Boise. It is amazing that a world-class skier like yourself chose to stay here for such a great reason. Yeah, and, and I, I could travel anywhere in the world. And when I got back home, I would go right back up to the mountain and ski and the people, the quality of people that I get to ski with back home is really the reason I stayed here. Of course, I spent winters in Europe and winters in Squaw Valley and winters here and there. And I, at the peak, I'd travel 10 months a year for almost 18 years in a row. So it wasn't like I was here as much as I could have been. But every single time I come back, it reminded me of why I, I train here. Because this is where the you get some brutal ski days, some awesome ski days, and you got to be able to handle it all. And it really does make you an all-terrain vehicle of the ski world. And I just found that if I stayed in one place too long, I kind of lost my edge. I mean, obviously I could go to Chamonix and stay for quite a while. Sure, yeah, sure. Of course. 
one of my proudest moments was getting people from like places like Chamonix to come visit here in Vermont and understand why I train here and how cool it actually is. Right. Amazing. I had a thought there, but I totally lost it. So I apologize. I want to go back to uh, the ski films um, and Warren Miller, obviously being a Warren Miller alumni, there's a, something special about that with all those people. So I can imagine you're feeling what other Warren Miller alumni people are feeling this year and not having a new original film for the first time in more than 50, 60 years. How do you, something that's defined such a large part of your life is sort of changing, right? Or if it's not going away, at least it's altering. How do you feel about that? And do you think that the ski film business will ever really be the same again? You know, the, the industry lost a real, their best cheerleader when Warren died. Mm -hmm. And uh, with Dick Mac Barrymore out of it and Warren gone, and, and now that this, the people who purchased his company deciding not to do that, I think the ski industry as a whole will lose out. There was no, no better promoter or sharer of the stoke, if you will, than that all tour of the film. I, I went to those for years and got on stage and introduced the film and told great Warren Miller stories and stuff. And you couldn't tell the difference whether you were in Boise or Dorchester or in Massachusetts. Like people just loved that film. It was the beginning of winter. They were so pumped to go skiing. And you know, the, the industry needs that. We've lost so much in, the, in these big companies buying up all the mountains. Years ago, when, when I was younger, I'd you know, the ski bum races, for instance, we would go to Smugs, we'd go to Stowe, we'd, we'd interact and we would ski and do photo shoots at all of those mountains. And nowadays you can't really do that. The ski bum races don't interact. So the ski bums don't interact between the two mountains and it kind of divides the industry up a little bit. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss the Warren Miller movies. And I think a lot of people are, and it, it's kind of the end of an era, I guess. It is. I mean, Warren, I, I still have a book sitting at home signed by him. It's sort of something that will always stay with me for what he did and what he created for all of us. He sort of, he, he set a new benchmark by, by all means. With that being said, you know, ski films today are different than back then. How do you, how do you feel? Have, have they lost their luster at all or anything? The, some of the newer ones, like it's, the YouTube era, I guess, the quick, short hits, less of the. Warren loved the story. He, he was a very funny man. He could make a crowd laugh and it joined the crowd together. And the way he told the stories, it made you want to feel like you were part of that mountain community, where, whether he was in uh, Czechoslovakia or Russia or in Smuggler's Notch, Vermont, sure. it wouldn't matter. So he kind of made everybody feel equal in that way. And he just brought the industry together. He brought in different types of sponsors too, with the airlines and the car companies. He really started a lot of that stuff and then producing their commercials. So he, he tied the industry to so much of the everyday world that I think that's kind of missing, if you will. Right. I, I know your son is a incredible skier, John. And skiing's different today because a lot of these films are just what, what huge cliff can you huck off of? Back in your day, you guys 
with taking those cliff lines, but it was technical skiing that you had to get into it. Do you feel that has changed? Yeah, I think that's changed a lot. And my son is a great skier. The, the kid skied three continents by the time he was three because he was traveling with me. And uh, we've had some really good times together. And I, I know for him, he's, they, they make videos and they have sponsors and they do stuff. But there's a million people out there on YouTube and for each company doing it. So it's a little different when you had one big movie per year. And yeah, it's changing a lot of it for sure. I think my most memorable John Egan moment on film is not surprisingly Grand Target and watching you jump over that cornice. But I wondered, like, are there other places you traveled that aren't necessarily at the forefront of people's minds that are really impactful for you and that really spoke to you in a lot of ways? There, there really is. I'd have to say anywhere in the Eastern Arctic, mm -hmm. really, I started in Greenland, uh, went through Baffin Island, Quebec, Labrador, all the way to Siberia, Vodka Peninsula, and I've worked with the Inuit communities in all of those places. And they really made the time there special. They were just the kindest people. They never asked for anything. A lot of times you go places, hey, how do you get your fancy clothes, your skis, whatever. These people just gave and showed and shared, and it was really special. And that made all the difference in the world. When I was in Greenland, Alaska was just blowing up. And I saw the shots of Alaska with these really steep, cool drops. And it was just something I had to experience. So I obviously I went and um, I always thought, geez, Greenland's just like Alaska, only big, <laughs> really big. You're not dropping off of something in straight line and after 300 feet of vert, you, you need to hold it together the whole way down. And it was so special. But I think Greenland probably is one of my favorite spots to have, have ever skied. Nice. Yeah, I hear it's, I have not been there, but I hear it's just amazing to say the least. So what do you, we, we talked earlier before you came on air about the soul of skiing and how some of it has been changed or lost to some degree or another. What are your thoughts on, on the future of skiing? How do you see the sport evolving? And how do the Indies, the Indies play how do they play into that to keep it alive with soul? I think the Indies are going to be the soul of the, they need to be really. I love the shorts that Ski the East puts out. And I know a lot of people follow the Jones brothers and TGR and whatnot. And I think it's really important that they really keep doing that. And I know the independent mountains, the smaller ones, really the same thing. They allow an entry level spot where most which I think is important. And so, I, Eric will tell you, I am truly an indie skier at this point. Right. It's where I put my time, effort. It's where I want to be. I, I, how to allow the Bolton Valleys, the Magic Mountains, the Black Mountains to survive and prosper. I mean, do you, if, if you're at Mad River on that single chair, is there any difference to you personally than being on a high speed? Yeah, it really is. I mean, the reason I got into skiing in the first place was getting out of the city and being in the mountains was just so peaceful to me. And when you're on that single chair and it's going kind of slow, you get a chance to enjoy the ride. 
On a quad, I noticed people don't talk to each other. On the old doubles, everybody always spoke to each other because there's only two of you there. Right. A, a triple that came out, yeah, maybe two would talk, one wouldn't. But the quads seemed to be quieter. And I think that a camaraderie or the of skiing really kind of gets lost in the big high-speed quads. When you're in an eight-passenger bubble with a heated seat and cover over you, it's... it's you know, it's not really being out there in the mountains. And that's part of what I love about it. You get the right clothes, you dress right, you got the right gear and any temperature is comfortable. And it's part of it too. It teaches you how to deal with that stuff. That's, that's life. That's skiing is, is all of life. Can you deal with the weather, the, the temperature, all that stuff? So yeah, it's very different. You need to feel your environment or you're never going to get good at handling it. I, I tell you, I'm right there with you with the bubble lifts, except when my five-year-old daughter is screaming and yelling at me, and it's too cold, it's too cold. I love the bubble lift in that in that instant. So I see a place for it, obviously, but I'm right there with you. Like, I feel guilty doing that. Like, I love this, but I feel guilty about loving it because I'm a hardcore New Englander, right? It, it It's it's tough. I feel like I'm not, not toughening out for the kids of my of future generations. Well, well, I... My view is we need more Palmas and T-bars because get out of the wind that way. Stay on your feet. Let your keep center down the ski on a, on a T-bar. <laughs> well, I think that the industry lost a lot when those went away. Uh -huh. um, it, you learning to ski on the way up and the way down. And if you're on a T-bar and you're with someone that's a lot taller, for me, taller, but maybe I could find someone shorter than me. It's hard to stay on the thing, right? If you're on it with your best friend, you are trying to knock them off the whole way up. Yep. So like you learn these skills and how to balance and move and do your regular movements that you would do in life on skis. And people forget about that when they go skiing. So I think they lose that chance of learning because they're sitting down doing nothing and maybe shivering all the way out. Yeah, I mean, I maintain one of the reasons I learned to ski so well at a young age is because I was at the J bar at Black Mountain, and I will not, de I will not deter from that. The fact that I learned on a J bar was a lot more uh, helpful than my kids learning on a carpet. It, it just, it just well, was. I, I, I love what you just said about the T bar. You being a little bit shorter. When, when my son was very young, I'm six one. The T bar, the upper T bar. At Saddleback, which is gone now, but I can remember it being on my calf going, oh, my God, how am I going to make it up? It's under his butt, under my calf. But right. but you learn. I, I love it because back where I learned to ski, that place called Kissing Bridge, New York, we had T-bars and we used to learn stance on the T-bar, how to stay balanced, how to stay, stay centered. And that's right. what I loved about it. So, yeah, so they, they cost less. They, you know, they don't so shut down. Times. They don't sh look at Sugarloaf that shuts down for wind weekly. There's one lift that doesn't up high. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of them. I want to go back to Warren Miller for a second in that three years ago, Future Retro came out, which was your return to Warren Miller Enterprises. And obviously it got released in a very different environment. It wasn't your typical, everyone go to the movie theater and have a ball. So I got to ask you two things. One, what was it like getting back into the saddle for Warren Miller Productions? And two, 
how much disappointment was there that your return was sort of just, well, it was COVID, right? It was COVIDed. How did that feel? It's luck of the draw, really. What can you do? It, but getting back and filming and being there with Dan and you know, Scotty Schmidt and Tommy Day was just fantastic. It was really pretty special to do that again. It was a really strange shoot because COVID shut everything down and we were the only ones at the resort. So it was really a weird shoot for that respect. And then, yeah, the release, because we did it online. We did it much like this. We mm -hmm. did a podcast beforehand and people were calling me like, where, where are you guys? Well, we're all in our living room. <laughs> Nobody's together. So that was really different. So yeah, maybe it didn't get the big bang that it might've. So that was a little maybe disappointing, but believe me, I've had enough of those films that it's really just the way it is. I got to do it. Let's put it that way. And it was really fun to do. And that's the most best part about those films is really you're out there with your buddies, you're ripping it up, you're pushing each other, you're learning from each other and you're, you're just having a great day. So, right. Well, I mean, I, I can, I can understand that, but even from a viewer standpoint, it was disappointing because here I am, I've, I've hung out with your brother for a year, getting his whole life story. Right. And here's, yeah. Here you guys are, like people that I watched skiing when I was growing up, you and your brother and Scott Schmidt on the big screen. And I was getting so excited to consume that. And then, you know, you get to consume it at home on a pay-per-view, which is fine, but it's not the Warren Miller experience. So, you know, from a viewer, I just want to let you know that I feel that like a bit was stolen there. So I can understand as one of the athletes in that particular film, how you feel kind of slighted because COVID has slightest us all in one way or another. Right. So why it wouldn't that be one? Buddy in the world. So it was nothing yeah. personal to any one of us. It was global by all means. So John, feel the turn. What's it all about? Well, when we got inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, up until that point, a lot of our stuff was scattered, whether it was on my brother's Egan Entertainment Network or Warren Miller's website or any of the other major film companies that I worked with from Europe or whatever. So my wife had the idea that why not put it in one place and have a website where people can figure out what you're doing. So she started to feel the turn. She's in branding and she branded that logo. And so we were putting videos on there and our trips when we went to Antarctica, we sold out on that site many times. So we've been posting updates and things to it. COVID really kind of made us stop doing a lot of that because not a lot was going on. But yeah, we just wanted a central location because people are always, where's your website? How do I get hold of you? How do I do? So I get a lot of emails through there. Just random stuff, old people that I used to ski with, old friends that find me there. So it's it's kind of fun to have. Perfect. I, I like it. What do you what are you doing these days? Well, I've always built to get my to support my life habit of skiing. Right. And in fact I've built on three continents. I've had to build in South America to pay my buddy's hospital bill when he slipped off the side of a mountain. But I've always liked to build, and I'm building a place. It's all hand-hewed beams. We built it right from the logs and everything from the land. And it's been a year and a half. It'll probably be a two-year project. And then we're, we've got a few trips in the, in the work. Well, that's, that's great. Are you still leading clients or anything anywhere? 
Not as much in the last few years. I had a complete ankle replacement, so I needed some time to recover from that. There was a full year of just PT, no skiing whatsoever. So I'm just back into that. And I've done a few little things, but um slowly getting back into that. The uh, Vermont Vermont uh, Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame is, uh, by the time this airs, you will have already been inducted at, during a ceremony at Killington on October 14th. Going in with the class of 2023, Howard Buxton, Diane and Tim Mueller, Mueller, sorry, excuse me, and Suzanne Susie Rook. Rook, Rook, right? Is it Rook? Susie Rook? Yeah, I think so. Or Recky. <laughs> I'm terrible, all right? I'll do that again. Howard Buxton, uh, John Egan, Diane and Tim Mueller, and Suzanne Recky. That is a, a pretty good class. How do you feel being inducted with that, that group of uh, individuals? Well, it's quite an honor, no matter how you slice it. But it's it's great to be amongst that crowd and the Mueller's giving so much to the industry and all these accomplishments and Olympic medals and things. So I, I feel privileged to be in with them. I see. You know, last year, Ralph Delorier went in and Betsy Pratt, and it was just just a joy to see their lives being acknowledged from the state that they brought so many tourists to. Well, yeah, I mean, how important they were to Vermont skiing. Especially up, up in that that area of Vermont. I mean, Betsy and Ralph and so on. Well, the big question here: what what wisdom would you like to leave the listener with? I mean, you've got wisdom beyond belief. You've been in situations. What is the wisdom that John Egan wants to leave the world with? Boy, uh, sorry to put you on the spot, but that's <laughs> philosophical here. Yeah. I guess I would, what I would do, I would ask you one question I haven't asked through this uh, meeting is your meditation through movement and the approach to skiing as meditation. Could you explain a little bit about that? Because it always fascinates me and I feel like I'm dabbling in it a little bit, but not quite getting there. Right. Well, that would probably be my little bit of wisdom too. So really good tandem questions. Perfect. Uh, I'm just, I'm just helping you out all over the place, John. You really are, you know, um, in the late seventies, I was lucky enough to be in a program called centered skiing. Denise McCluggage wrote the book called centered skiing. And she had some of her disciples here at Sugarbush where she skied and they offered to let me in the program. They said, Hey kid, try this out. And it was nothing I could afford that this is once again, how these people open their arms to me. And we would meditate for two hours about the shape of the turn and then go out and make a couple of runs and come back and meditate. And it really got to, or made me anyways, a lot calmer when I skied. And that's where it really works in to feel the turn because I'm all about how you feel the turn. And when I hear a lot of people talk about skiing, I know they're from their mind, they're manipulating their muscles or their legs stand forward or back or whatever they conceive. But if you really just understand that you have become part of energy and you are flowing and laws are different, the laws of physics are equal and opposite. The laws that we live by, if you walk faster, you go faster. You pedal faster, you go faster. Everything is more gets you more, but it's opposite, equal and opposite in physics. So it really takes a calm mind to feel the reaction from your movements or non-movements. 
So, you know, it, it's going to take a long time to explain all that, but I hope you kind of get what I'm talking no, about. A little. By all means. No, I do. And, and I totally understand. And I've actually, I, I've, I've got her book and I've read, I haven't read it cover to cover, but I, I think, you know, I, I have dabbled in meditating here and there, you know, at least, you know, once every other day or a couple times a week. And I've never been able to apply it to the skiing. But I think what you just said right there helped out tremendously. Take a turn and then meditate on that turn or take something simple, meditate on that something simple and the building blocks will eventually get you. Am I, am I making that up or is that kind of close to what you're saying? Yeah, it, um, it is that. And you, you have to be, um, you have to feel what the tool is doing. Right? And I work a lot with wood, so if you're using a chisel on a, or, or a knife on a lathe or something, you have to feel how that knife is cutting. Whether it's a drill going through the woods, is it cutting or pulling you or what's it doing? It's telling you whether you're going too fast or too slow. The same with skiing. If, if you feel what the ski wants to do, you'll know how to move to make it do that. I really think the human body gets short and long well. It doesn't twist. Usually when we twist, we're talking to a doctor, I twisted this or that. So if you just shorten and lengthen your body, you can run, walk, do all sorts of things. And that's all you need to do. But unless you understand, I call Egan's laws of perpendicularity, you know, he stands <laughs> Right on the ground. I ask for words of wisdom. You give me Egan's law of perpendicularity. So there you go. There you go. If half the people play basketball like they skied would check them for a head injury because they're leaning so far back and not moving their lower extremities are the same length through the entire turn. Sure. Would be, dude, you can't run like that. What's, what's your issue? But in skiing, we go, hey, you almost got the turn. You're pretty good there. I don't get it. If you watch most skiers, they're in a position and they have a right position and a left position that it's not a fluid movement between them. And you, you notice that in, when you watch skiers, I think. Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I had the pleasure of being on a lift at Stratton one year at the On Snow, and I had Phil and Steve Mayer sitting next to me cutting up <laughs> every skier going underneath going, okay, I see what you're talking about, but my God. <laughs> It's just at a different level when, when you, when you get it, you get it. Right. Yeah. And you can tell in the, the shape of the turn and what happens. And if you're feeling, if you, if you're so Zen that you're meditating and you're flowing with everything and a cornice drops out from under you, you're going to be aware of how much energy is actually stored in what part of your body yep. and what they'll have left on the ski to make an airplane turn and survive. Sure. I mean, that's, I, I hope the listener got that because it's profound wisdom. Um, and it's what made the whole North face team, what it was, because all of you guys are incredible skiers from that standpoint. Yeah. And I remember Robbie Huntoon, for instance, on that team, I skied with him. Speed skiing, mogul skiing, and pro ski, ski racing. Like everybody on that team wasn't disciplined in one thing. They were, they could do anything. And it really made that team fun to ski with. That, that is awesome. John, I just, honestly, I want to thank you completely for joining us. 
I want to congratulate you first off on the U.S. Uh, Hall of Fame with your brother. Uh, I was at that event and enjoyed it immensely. And we have to add Bernie Weichel, the the Massachusetts contingent. And right. uh, I also want to congratulate you on Vermont. I think it's awesome. You deserve it. Thank you very much. Absolutely, John. During our, I just wanted, before I let you go, during an email exchange last week, you brought up a story about on your way home, you saw that your neighbor's bull wheel was spinning and you pulled yeah. in. And could you tell us the rest of that story? Oh, it's so great. My buddies, Pete and Craig. And Peter's hobby his whole life has been making snow guns. He makes his own snow guns and he makes his own snow. And used to have the rope toe, the old Green Mountain Valley School rope toe. Sure. Green Mountain School started in our town down behind our elementary school. And he had bought that rope toe and it was in his backyard. And then one day I saw he had a, a T-bar and I believe it came from Tenny, an old Tenny one. But I could be wrong on that. But yeah, the bow wheel was turning and they have um, purchased some snow. Snowplast, I think, was the brand. And they were skiing a mogul course. They built moguls out of pine bark and then let the put the rug over those. And they could ski about a third of their ski hill. And they try to get 10 runs in a day. How'd it, how'd it work out? Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pretty good. At, Another neighbor of mine, Amy, who we've skied together for many, many years. The whole neighborhood was ski bums. That's why we all live here. But when she came by, she's like, nobody told me. I didn't bring my skis. So I imagine that thing's going to be rolling and it'll be a little more crowded than just the two of them. That's right. That, that's, that's awesome. Well, you just drug me back into the conversation again in another way. John, you are a true ski bum from day one. Is, is that lifestyle gone? Sadly, I think it is. It's really hard to find a job with woman board and enough money to buy your all your beer, especially with this micro brews around. My goodness, that yeah. But it was very common back then. Most of the places around had employee housing, or you could afford to get a place with three or four buddies. And I think in the ski towns, it's hard for housing. It's really hard for people to find a place. Which means you got to live far away. Which means you got to drive into work, and it just changes the dynamic of how much available cash you have left to live. So I, I think it's really hard to uh, be a ski bum anymore. My um, aunt was a ski bum in Cranmore, and really turned me on to the possibilities of how you could do that. And I just don't see ski bums nowadays at the mountain. I just don't see it. There are definitely people that work there and they love to ski, but they're not getting out the time we used to. And they got three jobs instead of one. So they're skiing one or two days a week. And that's, that's a hard way to follow your dream to become a great skier. Well, there is one of the best ski bums of all time. That is John Egan, U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Famer and future, well, not future, but in, at the time this airs, will have been inducted into Vermont Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. John, it was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Eric. Eric, that was fantastic. I mean, we actually, you guys can't see it on the pod here, but John was in front of us in exactly where I would expect him to be, sitting there in, in a post and beam barn talking to us. 
looking. He was in Vermont. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. it was him. One of my most memorable memorable interviews I've done over the past I don't know decade or so was when I was doing the book with with Dan Egan, and I went to John's house and sat down with him for. God, it had to be a good three hours that we just sat there and, and chatted. And then he brought me into the barn and showed me everything he was working on. And it was a great interview, and it was special to me in the openness that John trusted me with. John and I had dealt with each other here and there before, but never really to a, a deep level like I was getting with, with Dan and writing the book. And so when I brought that into John, and he was more than welcoming and more than willing in that three hours to just share and, 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 and grant me all these stories of, of his skiing career, being a, a skiing historian and a, and a geek in that, in that realm, I was just beyond. One of, one, of the, one of the most memorable interviews I've ever done. It was, it was just a great moment. And it was, again, another repeat there to have him on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, when it comes, I, I, I keep going back to Seoul. <laughs> I, I just keep, you know what? Um, when it comes back to soulfulness, John, when he's on the mountain, John, when he's with clients or people, he cares and he everybody gravitates to him. He's just that type of person. And I am so happy that Vermont's recognizing him. I am so happy that the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame rec- recognized both him and Dan. Mm-hmm. He is, I don't want to say he's an idol, but I admire him. No, it's not an idol, but I, I would put it this way. Like with him and Dan being on Powder Magazine's most influential skiers, when you talk influential skiers in the New England community, a lot of them are going to say the person who influenced me to ski the most or the person who influenced me to ski a certain way was John Egan because of that character that he has. And that was – it defines him and it defines the the state that he loves so much and calls his home. Well, yeah. I mean – when when you think of John, okay, you think of Rumble at Castle Rock, mm. okay, at, and you've seen I've seen so many pictures, so many videos of him skiing down Rumble, and I'm just in awe, going, well, I can ski it and I can ski it top to bottom, but I can't ski it like that. <laughs> there are a lot of things that John can't do. I mean. Throughout reporting the book with Dan, a refrain would be that Dan was just so damn impressed at how good a skier his brother was. And that was their sort of relationship. And kind of is still now. <laughs> Dan's still looking at his brother and saying, God damn, he's a good skier. Well, that's, that's with without a doubt, he's a good skier. But, well, folks, it has been fun talking about movies. It has been a lot of fun talking to somebody we we admire like John Egan, giving him his kudos for his accomplishments. But we also need to know what you guys want to hear. Eric's got a few things in the docket that we're going to do this winter, but we're 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 now weekly podcasts. We want to know what you want to hear, and if if you want to hear from a given person, send that to Eric. And I promise, I'm pretty good at getting people, aren't I? Yeah, you're, Mike is actually just amazingly tremendous in what's another adjective I, I can use with. Mike has an persistent. idea for a guest, persistent. He goes and gets them immediately. It's it's truly been, he, he is the stir that, that, the stir, the straw that stirs this drink in terms of keeping things on schedule. 
because what, I'm not very good at it. What, I'm punctual? Yes, very punctual, hey, very hey, proactive. Hey, D- Dave, the producer, am I punctual? Sorry. You are punctual. <laughs> no one is as punctual as you. I think, you. I think you might live here in the studio. I'm good at writing the questions. I'm good at sort of bringing that story aspect out of it. But as far as landing the people and getting them on and talking them into it, Mike is the king of it. So thank you very much to Mike. And, yes, we will be going. I'm not sure the date. It's November when we start weekly. So who knows? This could be a weekly podcast. Who knows? In terms of this will no longer be a bi-weekly podcast. We're back into the thick of things. So we're going to be weekly starting in November. So do check in on us every Friday, not every other Friday, as you may have been getting used to over those summer months. Now it's ski season. So there's a lot more to talk about. And and I can guarantee it will be about skiing. Yes. There's nothing, nothing else thrown in now, but get the ideas to Eric. He'll give you the location to send them to. Eric.Wilbur at SkiJournal.com. Some of you have sent in ideas. I, I thank you for them, and they are in the, in the works. Mike, thank you very much. Eric, that was fantastic. It was a pleasure having John on. Honestly, it's, it's getting more and more fun because we're getting a broader perspective of the skiing community as a whole. Right, and there's this... So many stories out there that we hope to only bring you a dozen of them all winter, and that will be a success because it's it's a lot of fun meeting the people and the communities of this world that we call skiing in New England and bringing all the stories out to you. So thanks for being on the ride with me. Hey, bottom line is get get the game face on. It's game on. It's time to go skiing, folks. All right. That'll do it for us. I am Eric Wilbur. This was the New England Ski Journal Base Camp Podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media Podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.